Don't be fooled. The minute the market changes, those VCs are gonna say, you need to cut 25% of costs, and you just lost a whole bunch of money. Hey there, today's Billion Dollar Bite features some of my key takeaways from our episode with Elodie Dupuy, who yes, started as a receptionist at Inside Venture Partners, but today is betting on herself with Full End Partners, her own firm, a software-focused 200 million growth equity fund based in New York City. The wild story that got her here, you'd have to tune in to the full episode, which yes, I'll link in the show notes. But in the meantime, we are focused on a question that I've observed. So many underestimate, and because they've done so, are now suffering the consequences. Here it is. How do I sign a deal that really works for me longer term? Specifically, after you've done the rounds and finally have a willing buyer and a willing seller, how do you actually make it work? How do you build for funder and founder alignment? What does it mean to have realistic expectations and outcomes so that we don't suffer the consequences in the distressed market, i.e. right now? Let's dig in. The impact of the broader market I do think it's creating a much needed awakening for um, founders. I think there's been a lot of false messaging that's gone out around what it means to be founder friendly. And, you know, when I first started investing, you know, people were using terms like participation, they were using ratchets, they were using, you know, all sorts of uh, financial mechanisms to, frankly, like improve the outcomes for the investor at the expense of founders. And in, you know, the probably like, 2012 to 15 timeframe, people were sort of waking up to the idea that like these terms are not very friendly to us and they seem benign on the way in, but they really matter on the way out. And I think that led to a general viewpoint of, you know, plain vanilla term sheets is the way to be founder friendly. More dollars at a higher valuation with less dilution is a way to be founder friendly. And for the last few years, we've been trying to sort of um, provide an alternative perspective, which is dilution isn't the only thing that matters because if you own more of a thing that's worthless, it's worthless. Um, And if you own more of a thing, but you have a ginormous preference stack ahead of you and one thing goes wrong and you've raised at these exorbitant valuations, like you'll never see a penny. It'll all go back to your investors and you'll have worked for 12 years with no gain, right? And so um, if you're really thinking about being founder friendly, what you want to create is a, a, a deal dynamic, which is fair to both sides which creates really strong alignment between both sides where both sides do well in any sort of outcome, you know, past obviously a a minimum threshold, right? And ultimately what it means for me to be founder friendly is deals should be structured based on that company specific. So you can't just apply a generic format and say, oh, we just value all of our companies at, you know, 10X and we value, we give them all, you know, we only take 20% and we always invest minimum $25 million, whatever it is. You have to think about like, what are the real capital needs for this business to achieve its goals? And how big is that market? Because the market will dictate how heavily you can lean in, how much you can, you know, value the business, how many dollars you should be putting into it, how many rounds they should be expecting to go raise. Like you have to think about all of those factors as an investor and use those as inputs on how you create the right deal structure for that group that you're working with so that you have that alignment on day one. Um, And then the second component is like you have to pull your weight. Like you can't just come in, cut a check and consider your work done and expect to get a 30% slug of the outcomes. Like if you are a 30% owner on the cap table, it feels to me like you should be generating 30% of the value. And that means being plugged into what's happening, bringing strategic advice, bringing operational support, bringing like whatever it takes to kind of shepherd that company through to a successful outcome. Um, And so that's really the premise that we have is our, our goal is for founders to know that if they work with full in, they will see a payday. 
Yeah, but Elodie, you're, you're investing at this time when, you know, at the growth stage, arguably, valuations have been slashed the most, right? We've seen some of the big funds uh, launch fund of funds to invest in the early stages because they realize that, oh, we need to be able to get in on these deals because the IPO window is shut. Uh, where, where are we going to see distributions at your level and, and how are you thinking about the exit strategy here? I think it depends on how the funds were investing over the last couple of years. I mean, we've always been very focused on disciplined pricing and we've said this to all of our, our, our founders, right? Like you want to take a deal from us because it's a fair deal that represents the real value of your business. And if we're doing a fair deal today, it'll be a lot easier to get to an outcome that everybody's happy with because you're not going to be forced to get this like crazy hurdle on valuation. I mean, outcomes. The, the, so one, the answer is outcomes will come from acquisitions. M&A represents 85% of all exits, even when it's the hottest IPO market you've ever seen. So no matter what, as an investor and as a founder, you should be preparing for a situation where your exit is going to be via M&A. Number two, most M&A outcomes are happening in valuation ranges of like, call it 150 to $500 million. There are not that many billion dollar exits. So if you're raising money as a founder from investors, you should be getting into a valuation where that investor is going to make two to three times their money at an exit of 400, you know, whatever, 200 to $500 million. And if you're taking money at much higher valuations than that, you need to understand that you as a founder are taking a tremendous risk that you yeah. won't get to an exit or that when you do, it'll be at a valuation where you won't see a return. Right. Um, and for investors, same thing. Like you have to think about that. And then obviously, if you know the market allows and the window makes sense and the company is the right profile and you want to get to an IPO, great. You can always you can always move up, but you, it's really hard to move down. Right. So. Um, that's how we think about it. And that's how we've always thought about it. We always underwrote to very fair valuations. Um, you know, on fund one, our average entry ARR was about eight times. So it was in line with where the market is today. If you look at all of our investment decks, we underwrote to multiples compressing. We expected that there would be a downturn. Um, and so we underwrote to a best case outcome of eight times ARR at exit. And I think we're seeing that, you know, most companies are still trading in the like eight to 10 times. So we might even still benefit from multiple expansion relative to what we underwrote to at the time of outcome. Um, but our base case was that we'd be selling for six to seven times. So yeah. that was factored into how we were thinking about the way in that, again, it goes back to this notion of alignment. Like we want to be aligned with founders where we aren't putting artificial pressures that have to do with like what returns we need to drive. We're looking at probabilistic, like statistically, where's the most probable outcome? What's the most probable valuation at outcome? How do we value your company today so that we're getting the outcome we need so that you know that you're also getting an outcome? And let's build towards that like worst of worst of worst of worst downside case. And if we all blow past that downside case, amazing, everybody wins, right? But at the very least in a downside, we're also still winning and we're not end up ending up on opposite sides of the table. Um, so that's how we think about the market conditions. And frankly, I think a lot of the pressure that we're seeing um, you know, when, uh, when folks are going out to raise funds, I've heard it's a lot harder. I think these are some of the toughest conditions that have existed yeah. in quite some time. Um, but at the same time, from a founder perspective, I think there is an opportunity now for quality companies to actually emerge where if you were bootstrapped in the past, you were getting outpriced on Google search. You were getting outpriced in terms of talent. You were getting outpriced on a lot of things that made it hard to compete. And right now, if you're EBITDA positive, you have all the buying power versus companies who are like slashing costs and trying to conserve and mm. get out of a burning position. Um, and so our our view for you know where liquidity will come from, it's the companies that were fo focusing on strong fundamentals a year or two ago, uh, which happens to be many of our portfolio companies because yeah. 
we were planning for this. And I said to our teams, like, you guys want to be in a position where you can self-sustain because when the market turns, you'll be the only ones who can grow. Um, and if you had those profiles, that's now what investors are looking for. So there's a lot more focus on profitability. There's a, a, pre a preference for slower growth at profitability versus this hyper growth where you're kind of burning through capital at no end. Um, so I think those those profile businesses will have no problem generating outcomes. Uh, and that's where your liquidity will come from for the short term. And yeah. So at some point, market will come back. Yeah. So uh, talking about your winners, you have Canva, Vinted, UserCentrix, AutoRabbit, a lot of good names under your belt here. Uh, what do you think will differentiate the winners and the losers in this market? And what is your advice to founders at the growth stage who are tuning in? The differentiation will be service minded. So founders who approach the market with a service mindset of how do I best serve my customers? How do I deliver to them a product that is such high value and such high quality that they can't live without it? Um, and a lot of people talk about, you know, how their their software products are, um, you know, critical, mission critical, blah, blah, blah. It's less. Mission critical is important, but something will become mission critical if you just love it. Um, I don't know how mission critical Canva is, but I don't know a single person who uses Canva and isn't obsessed and wouldn't like find a reason to call it mission critical because they enjoy that experience so much. So I do think that mm -hmm. a, a focus and an emphasis on the users and the customers is really important. Um, you know, in every cycle, we've seen a lot of like recent MBA grads who are going out and saying like, let's find a big TAM and let's like figure out where the gaps are and let's design a solution for that gap. To me, that's sort of artificial. You're really trying to just build a business quickly that you think you can grow and sell. And it's very like personally driven in terms of like, I want to get to an outcome and, and generate wealth versus like, I experienced a thing that was so off-putting that I just couldn't not go fix it. Um, and those are the founders that we tend to work with is the ones who just have like a personal bone to pick with the thing that they experience and they had to build a thing to fix that problem for everyone else. And they're always thinking about like, how do I fix this thing for everyone else and and make it better for everyone else. Those are the ones that I think will ultimately succeed. And also people who who have discipline and who have, I guess, risk management built into their framework. So just because you had a really great payback period, you know, or, or a, a really great uh, retention rate two years ago, if you don't understand the real drivers of that retention rate, it doesn't mean you can go spend you know, two or three years of payback because you have this retention rate. And this is one of the things that we look at a lot is like of your underlying customer base, this is such an obvious thing to me, but like how many of those customers are venture backed? If you were mm. selling your software product to all of your buddies who started software companies, who all raise money from VCs and have money to spend on your product and you're showing, you know, 150% retention rate, don't be fooled. The minute the market changes, those VCs are going to say you need to cut 25% of costs. And that means software cut, you know, they're going to make headcount reductions. When you do headcount reductions, there's seat reductions. When there's seat reductions, there's contract reductions. And when there's contract reductions, there's there's a drop in retention rate, right? So if you're sitting here saying, I've got this amazing retention rate, I can go ahead and spend three years of revenue from this customer to acquire them because in year four, I'll be so super profitable. Well, that may not happen. If the market changes in that three-year hold period, all of a sudden you've acquired a customer that you will never make money on. And you just yeah. lost a whole bunch of money. And those are things that I think if you haven't been through a downturn, you don't necessarily know to factor into your rationale. 
And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with friends. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Bill and Dollar Moves.